I was thinking about the marriage retreat and the particular speakers got four or five kids, Maisie said. And uh, when we had our fourth child, all I could think of was that Jim Gaffigan stand-up where he talks about having four kids. Anybody ever seen Gaffigan stand-up? He says, if you want to know what it's like, just picture yourself drowning in a pool and someone comes over and hands you a baby. That's, that's what it's like to have four kids. <clears throat> um, I'm excited to continue our series this morning. Um, we have been really just, we're going to take the next several weeks, uh, and we've, last week and this week, we've started this series, uh, I can't remember the name, The Truth We Believe. And really what we're doing is taking questions that, that folks had answered on a survey, and really things that we see nationally that, that have become theological misconceptions, or ideas about things, or questions about things that really the Bible answers for us, and they're important things. And this morning I have the pleasure, uh, really the honor, of preaching Christ. Uh, there is no greater honor than that. And if you walk downstairs from Mike's office, right up in the loft here, every time we get done praying before service, walk down the stairs. And, and you can't help but face a picture that Mike put up. And it's a quote from Spurgeon that says, Preach Christ, always and forevermore. He is the whole gospel. His person, offices, and work must be our one great, all-comprehending theme. And we venture to preach Christ here at Renovation Church. Um, the Apostles' Creed reads this. And the church used to quote this and stand and say it together, historically. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You think of the Apostles' Creed that the church used to quote and stand and say together. It's not scripture. It is, it is a creed derived from scripture, from three themes of scripture. For for. Church Throughout church history, there have been creeds and confessions of faith where uh, believers throughout history have taken the realities of Scripture and written them down in creeds and in confessions so that the church would say them over and over again, so that they would, like Hebrews declares or, or, or Exodus, that they would be on our, our doorposts, that we would speak them to our children. And, and the church throughout history has confessed these confessions and these creeds that have been derived from Scripture. Why? Why do we do that? So that we don't drift away in, into theological nonsense. So that we remember what Scripture says about who Jesus is, about our salvation, and so that we would, so that we would say these things and so that we would remember. And, and I, as, as, as we've approached this series as we've taken a look at where the evangelical church in America is, I think we've lost something. We've come away from these confessions and these creeds. 
we've stopped saying them over and over again. And what we've done is, is we've preached many times in the American evangelical church just things that tickle the ears. We've just taken some passages and proof text them and talked about good ways to have a nice life. We've tried to be Oprah in the church. And what we've done is we've drifted away from the reality of who Jesus is and what the Bible says. And so when we see a question like this that we're going to approach this morning, who is Jesus? And you ask it church-wide across the nation, what do you believe about Jesus? I think we would all be alarmed to hear the answers. Is Jesus God? Was Jesus created? And so we come this morning to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. I'm actually going to read through 20. Sorry, Brendan. (laughs) Um, And let's read this together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. This speaks of the preeminence of Christ. Let's look at it together and see what the word of God says about who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So we're going to approach Jesus this morning and that question of who is Jesus? Who is he? You know, the the reality of Jesus in the historicity of Jesus, everyone has to deal with, right? Everyone throughout history really since Christ has had to deal with who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? And in the historicity of Jesus, the reality of the historical Jesus has has, uh, has forced everyone to really deal with this, and everybody does. I mean, if you're a, a Muslim, Jesus is mentioned over and over again in the Quran. He's, he's Isa, I-S-A, the prophet sent from God. He, he in Islam is one of God's best prophets, and he's mentioned several times in the Quran. Whether you're a Jew, the Jews believe Jesus was a false messianic uh, claimant who was one of the most uh, successful uh, prophets or, or men to claim to be the Messiah who drew people away from, in their view, the true religion and led people away from Judaism. The Hindus say that Jesus is the incarnation of the god Vishnu who comes to preserve or sustain life or restore order on earth. I think Vishnu shows up a couple times as a fish and some other things and, and they believe he's a reincarnation of Vishnu. Atheists are agnostics. They usually believe Jesus was a good guy. Uh, or he was someone to be emulated, someone to look up to, someone to maybe um, mimic your life after. He was just a, a good guy. Non-believers, really, in essence, I think if you were to, to question non-believers nationally about who is Jesus, I think the, they would just historically say he's like the equivalent of 
I don't know, Washington or, or Alexander Hamilton, now that he's famous again. Right? Anybody seen the play? No? No one can afford to see the play. <clears throat> I think you can get a ticket a year from now for like a grand. But <clears throat> the music's great. So he's just a historical figure. Someone, someone has to deal with. You know, one of, the, one of the most famous quotes about Jesus that I just think is brilliant, and it's probably overused, and I'm sure many of you have heard it, but I think it's, it's really poignant right now, is by C.S. Lewis, who uh, C.S. Lewis was the professor of medieval literature at Cambridge and at Oxford, brilliant Christian writer, uh, wrote prolifically, started out as an atheist, and in his pursuits uh, to, to disprove Christ and to study uh, the Bible as a, as a piece of medieval literature, uh, became a believer and one of the most prolific Christian writers. Uh, his classic work, Mere Christianity, is, is really uh, one of the best apologetic books written about Christianity in history. And uh, C.S. Lewis, um, his quote, I think, is, is really poignant about Jesus because I think if you really look at the claims of Christ, you have to deal with him this way. And as Lewis looked at the Bible and listened as an atheist or read through the claims of Christ, he said this. He said that Jesus, his claims make him one of three things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You see, if you look at the claims of Christ in Scripture, he can only be one of three things. A liar, an absolute lunatic, or he can be who he says he is, Lord. There really is no other options if you look at what he says about himself. Well, we come to Colossians, and we have to deal with the reality of Christ and what Scripture says about him, and it is good news for the Christian. Amen? Matthew 16 is one of those narratives that I love in reference to dealing with this question of who is Christ. If you look at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16, you see a narrative, one of the most famous narratives in the Bible. It says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I love this. He says to them, well, who do you say I am? And Peter, who's not a shy man, replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Amen? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see in this, you see in this narrative, Jesus, he's interacting with his disciples. He's in this place, uh, Caesarea Philippi, which is really a, one of the crown jewels of the powerful Roman Empire, one of their areas of, of, of great power and of great military flex, where, where they really rule from India to England. I mean, you know, if you got a beef, you got to travel two years. There's no, you know, th their empire was vast. It was powerful. They're in one of the crown jewels in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus looks at them, and he says, uh, who are people saying that I am? Who, who are other people? How are they talking about me? What's the word on the street? Well, you're one of the prophets, John the Baptist, one of these guys. You know, the thing about all those guys is they're dead. And Jesus looks to them and he says, yeah, but who do you say I am? And, and Peter, in this, in this area 
of, of great Roman military power, he looks at him and he says, you're the Christ, you're the king. Really, that word is used, you are the king, the king. You're the Christ. And he declares the authority and the reality of who Jesus is in that moment, in that place. What, a, what an incredible moment. And, and really, it's a moment each of us has to come to. Who do you say he is? What do you say about Jesus in your life? How do you answer the question, who do you say I am? Paul makes it clear in the book of Colossians. He lays it out for us in a way that is so encouraging. And the reality of who Christ is, as revealed in Scripture, is a powerful reality. Take a look at Colossians again. What we see in Colossians 1, verse 15, is that Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make him known. I'm sorry, I skipped. I went to the, I jumped pages. I really did need my coffee. He is the image of the invisible God. I'm like, what am I reading? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. What do we see first about what Colossians declares, what Paul clearly declares Jesus to be? He is God. He's the, he's the image of the invisible God. See, he, he, it's very practical. This idea of Jesus is very practical because he is He's the image of a God that has otherwise been invisible to us. And we, we talked about it all through Christmas that Christ is God incarnate, God with us. He is the image of this otherwise invisible God. He's the picture of him. Where divinity lives, Jesus is that image of the invisible God for us. God didn't have to reveal himself to us. God is, is so far above and so far beyond us. But, but the beauty of Christ and the beauty of, of who Jesus is, is God coming to us and depicting who he is, showing us who he is as God comes to earth, God incarnate, Jesus, fully God and fully man. He is the image of the invisible God. We have an ability to see who God is through Christ, Amen. In fact, Calvin was so concerned that, that this be the reality for believers is he warned against trying to find images of God in anything else other than Christ, lest you be led astray. Christ is the image of the invisible God. This God that is otherwise invisible to us, this God that is otherwise unknown to us, has made himself known through Jesus Christ. Amen? What, what an incredible thing that God would come to us in that way. That God would reach us in that way. That he would come. And he would be among us. The image of the invisible God. And, and, and so, continue reading here. You see some controversy that has, has really been a, a controversial text and shouldn't be for centuries. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You know, there's no heresy that's a new heresy. Uh, back in AD 250 uh, to 336, you saw Arius and the followers of Arius that would take this text 
and declare that, that Jesus was a created being. Because, of course, it says that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he must be the first person to be created. That's not what it says at all. And if you really look at the scripture, it explains itself. The firstborn really is, is very clearly to those who would be reading this, uh, the firstborn of anyone is the heir to, all, to everything. It, it shows preeminence. It shows supremacy. It shows David, the, the king, and, and, and Jesus as the greater David, as the heir of everything. He is the firstborn of all creation. And, and the word for, right after that verse, absolutely explains what Paul's talking about. He's the heir to everything because, or for, by him, everything was created in heaven and on earth. This passage is saying Jesus is the heir. He is the, as a firstborn would get everything from the Father, Jesus is the firstborn of creation because everything in him, for by him, for by Jesus, all things were created. He's the creator. That's what Paul's declaring. Jesus was there, as John 1 says, from the beginning. He's the word, the word, uh, the dwelt. Jesus was there in Genesis, hovering over the, the, the expanse. Jesus was a part of the Godhead. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, and through him, all things were created. Jesus was the creator. All things were created through him, and all things were created for him. That's what Paul's saying. What an incredible declaration by Paul in Colossians. This Jesus is not just a good prophet, not just someone to throw a wristband on your wrist and wonder what he would do and try to emulate your life after him. That is not what Jesus is about. Jesus was the creator of all things. All things were created through him and for him. What a powerful declaration of who Jesus is. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ. Who do you say I am? Jesus, you were there from the beginning. For by you all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him, through Jesus, and for him. Unbelievable. This is what scripture says about who Jesus is. He is the head of the body, the church. You know, what we see in, in verse 16 is that all things were created through him and for him. He's both the agent and the goal of creation. Jesus is the agent of creation and the goal of creation. He is, he is the Lord of all things. You know, we all have to deal with his lordship in this regard. As we answer this question about who Jesus is, we have to deal with, with his, his lordship. And, and one of the things I think that, that is a fallen, uh, we, we call it a fallen condition factor, one of those things that, that we see across uh, Christianity and in our own lives as we get introspective about answering this question in our own lives personally, who Jesus is, is and, and we see it commonly in, in, in our churches, in, in our church, um, and in our own lives as we look at it, is, is this idea of Jesus being just something we intellectually assent to, or Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord of everything, is something we submit our lives to. Does that make sense? You know, as we deal with the reality of salvation, as we deal with the reality of his lordship, 
I think it's very possible for a lot of people to intellectually assent to Christianity as a cultural or a, or a, a check in the box and a list of things you do in your life, yet not in your heart and in your mind, this, your, your belief be a, a submission to his lordship as king and the reality of who he is. That's something we need to examine, is it not? I think we find in cultural, in cultural Christianity across the board, whether it be down south or even up here northeast, I, I think we find people who would say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I intellectually assent to that. Yes, I go to church. I, every Sunday I come, I stand, I sing, I read the Bible, and then I go about my life, but yet have nothing else in our life that reflects a submission to the lordship of the one who is the king, who through, all, through him all things were created and for him all things were created. The reality of who he is necessitates us to reflect on that and either submit or not. Am I right? The reality of who Jesus is revealed to be in scripture is something we need to deal with in reference to his lordship in our lives. There is an awe and as the Bible declares, a fear that we should have in reference to the king of kings. Am I right? The lion of Judah. I heard Matt Chandler once talk about the lion of Judah, and I thought it was an interesting anecdote. Because there's something about lions that, that are beautiful and amazing and just so majestic. And there's something that makes you a little nervous, Right? I was at the zoo a few years ago, and I can't remember which one of my kids was standing at the glass by the lions with their back holding something to eat, a popsicle or a sucker or something. And I'll never forget the lion just kind of coming. Doo, 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 doo. And there was a, an initial thought like, wow. And then, uh, whew, there's glass, right? <laughs> like just the paws up against the glass and right there. And, you, and, and you're immediately grateful for, for very, very sturdy glass between the lion and your kid. There's a reality about who Jesus is. Through him, all things were created. For him, all things were created. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is God incarnate. Jesus, if that is the reality of who he is as revealed in scripture, there should be something about our lives that are in submission to that. There should be a reality in us that says, Jesus isn't just a genie in the bottle that I go to church and I pray when I want a parking spot and I, and I just I think about him when I'm in need or I, or I pray a little anecdote to just say uh, some sort of intellectual assent to him to say, yep, Jesus is in charge, but throughout the rest of my days, I'm in charge of my own lives and, and I'm not in submission to who he is. You know, we talk about maybe nominal Christians. I don't even think that's a reality, but this idea of nominal belief, where you would maybe have intellectual assent, but no heart. I'm not saying we have to be perfect. We're all struggling and dealing with submission to Christ in our lives and the reality of sin, but there should be something in us that desires to submit, even though we're struggling. There should be a reality of who Jesus is in our lives where we are in pursuit of submission to Christ because we recognize who he is in relationship to us. And I fear that some people aren't even in that struggle. Yeah. 
I fear that some people aren't even thinking about the reality of who Christ is in relationship to them. They've just moving on with life and, and satisfied with checking the church box. And that should be a concern. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, there's implications for us. So Paul's not saying he was the first created being. He's the heir of the estate. He's preeminent. He's the greater David. It ascribes supremacy and honor and dignity to him. He's the creator. All things created in him, by him, and for him. He's both the agent and the goal of creation. Christ is the Lord of all. He's before all things, verse 17. And in him all things hold together. What an incredible statement. What we find in Christ is that moment by moment, he sustains the universe. That he's, he's before all things. He wasn't created. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. How remarkable is that? Moment by moment, the universe is sustained by Christ. In, thi- in, in him, all things hold together. What an amazing thing. The earth is, is set on its axis at 23.5 degrees. And, and, and we're kept the perfect distance from the sun. It spins at the right rate. Uh, the, the, the temperature is the right temperature. You know, I was just even thinking, uh, I was reading a book by Nancy Percy about, about uh, the realities of worldview, and she talks about microbiology, the idea that, that just what we know today about the inside of us and, and our microbiology, that you have millions of little railroad tracks where cells and things arrive all at the perfect time for us to be who we are. As a prosecutor in special victims, I, I commonly am prosecuting cases where we're dealing with DNA, and I'm always amazed at the DNA techs and the lab technicians that testify about what DNA and mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA and YSTR DNA and talking about all the things that make up who we are. And, and, and as you look at the reality of that and you see it in Scripture, all of this is held together by Jesus moment by moment. How amazing is that? He is preeminent. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. I love that Darwin said, if the cell is more complicated than I think it is, I'm wrong. Guess what? It is. You can't have all of that stuff happen at once. Or you can't need all of that to happen at once for us to be who we are and have him be right progressively over time. Jesus holds it all together moment by moment. He is holding the universe together, and he's in control. Folks, that's good news. Maybe this morning, you're not holding it together. Maybe this morning, life seems out of control. Maybe this morning, subjectively, 
you just seem like you can't get a handle on it. And there's too many things outside of you that seem like they are in control. And you're almost like that person described so often in scripture that's tossed around by a wave of circumstances or blown like chaff. When the wind blows, you go wherever it takes you. And Christian, this morning, because of who Jesus is, you have this ability because of who the scripture declares Christ to be, because everything is held together by him. You can reach out of your subjective feeling and you can hold on outside of that to something objective and true. And that's that Jesus is in control and he's holding it all together. Amen. You can scramble back to the truth of scripture and hold on to what's, what's more real than how you feel right now. You can hold on to a truth that's absolutely objective despite what's going on subjectively in your life. And as your life feels like this sometimes subjectively, you have objective truth about the reality of Christ and who he is in your life this morning that you can hang on to, that you can bank on, you can count on it. It's true. It's real. He is in control. He is before all things, and he is holding everything together, moment by moment. He is beyond time. He knows the beginning from the end, and he knows what's going on with you. And you may not understand what's happening, but what you can do is you can bank on the reality that he does. Amen? Amen. And you can trust him. You can trust him. Man, that is a great truth for us this morning. He's the head of the body, the church. He is in charge of his church. He is the firstborn from the dead. We see this this reality that not only was creation made through him, not only was creation made for him, but creation was redeemed by him. Jesus, the creator, Creation was made through him, creation was made for him, and as we see here, creation was redeemed by him. Jesus, who was fully God, who was fully man, he he rose from the dead. Christ inaugurates a new creation in a new age by his death and resurrection, amen? Jesus, the firstborn of the dead, his own resurrection is an anticipation and a guarantee of the resurrection of all his brothers and sisters, amen? Because of who he is, His death and resurrection had implications for all of us that are in him. And because he rose from the dead and he redeemed and bought us by his blood, we then can can anticipate and understand the guarantee of our resurrection. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, death, where's your victory? This fear of death need not be a fear anymore because Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead, has beaten death and he's beaten sin, our greatest enemies. And if we are in him, he's only the firstborn of the resurrection. We will follow right with him in our own resurrection. Amen? That is good news. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And all of this is that in everything, verse 19, he might be preeminent. He might be preeminent. 
without detracting from the glory of the pre-existing son that the pre-existing son already had with the father, Christ's resurrection marks a higher standard, a standing of authority. By virtue of the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ demonstrated that he is Lord of the universe, which, he's, which was created by him, which has always been sustained by him, and which he has now redeemed. Because Jesus is fully God. Verse 19 declares his death and resurrection is sufficient for the salvation of sinners. Because of who he is, his death and resurrection is sufficient for sinners. You can count on it. Amen? We serve an incredible God, do we not? That he would be preeminent. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. May he be preeminent in our lives. The reality of who Jesus is, the answer to that question, the implication of it should be that he is preeminent in our lives. He is not a means by which we gain other things that would be preeminent. He is not a means by which we gain wealth. He is not a means by which we gain a sense of safety and security. He is not a means by which we gain approval for others. He is not a means by which we go through life and don't have hard times. He is not a means by which we just pray to Jesus and things work out. He is not a means by which we have our best life now. He is not a means by which we have all the things that we want other than him. That's not what he's for. It's for him. He is what we get at the end. And there is nothing greater to have than Jesus. Amen? He's not the means to get other stuff. He's it. He is preeminent. And if we're not preaching Christ at Renovation Church as preeminent, go somewhere else. Because this is what we should preach every week. As Spurgeon said, this should be our dominant theme. Jesus Christ is preeminent. Amen? Amen. He is God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and who you've declared yourself to be. We thank you for the reality that you hold all things in your hand. For the reality that the creation was made through you and for you and by you and you've redeemed it as well. We worship you because you are the one worthy to be worshipped. We get to know who God is because you have revealed yourself. The image of the invisible God made visible to us in Christ. Our prayer this morning is that you would be glorified in this place simply because of who you are. In Jesus' name, everybody said.